0: Hey there. Thanks for tuning in to Powerful Perspectives, a podcast documenting a group of high school students' journey to discovering true authority in a world of competing voices. My name is Amber DeLugash, and I teach a dual credit composition course in Bolivar, Missouri. Last semester, my students wrestled with the coursework through the lens of an essential question. What does it mean to be an American? At one point, a student reflected that stories create connection, and connection creates understanding. Therefore, we decided that in order for us to walk away from the semester with a greater understanding of the question, we had to listen to the experiences and insight of others outside of our limited vantage points. So we hosted a variety of people with different perspectives, and we published our dialogue on a separate podcast called The American Experience. This semester, we're striving to answer the question, what is power? If we learned one thing from last semester, it was that there's great power in listening to understand. So we decided it was crucial to call in experts once again and publish our conversations. As you listen, keep in mind that each discussion is organic and unscripted. Students are gathering around the table, some figurative and some literal, to hear from our guests. You'll receive the full school experience, complete with bells, announcements, and tardiness. Thanks for stepping into our world as we try to step into the worlds of others. Here's another episode of Powerful Perspectives. Today, we had the privilege of hosting Christina Bravada, the program manager of the Addiction Recovery Program here in Bolivar. After Christina's husband Kurt, a medical doctor in a neighboring county, reported an alarming amount of addiction coming through his family practice, the two put their heads together to formulate a proposal for our local Citizens Memorial Hospital Network to launch an addiction recovery program. After a lot of dedicated work, the clinic opened six months ago, but the preparations and continued work provides Christina with a nuanced perspective when it comes to the topic of power.
1: So, my name is Christina Bravada. And I'm the program manager for the addiction recovery program at Citizens Memorial Hospital. It's a new program. We um, have been working on it about, well, I've been working on it about three years, but we just opened about six months ago. Um, so, when Amber asked me to speak, uh, and she said the topic is what is power, I was pretty intimidated by that subject because I think it's a huge subject and I think there's a lot of answers. But in my field of work, um, I deal a lot with um, people and patients who feel powerless. And I think that the answer to what is power is really that the only thing you have power over truly in your whole life is yourself. I don't think that um, of course somebody can go be incarcerated and physically they are powerless to leave a jail cell but that really only means that they're physically powerless they still have their mind they still have their spirit we're a three-part being body mind and soul right so truly to understand what power is, I think you have to understand how powerful you are for yourself and for your own mind and your own body. Um, In our line of work, we work with addicts. We work with all kinds of addictions. Um, Addictions can be substance-based. Those can be alcohol, uh, meth, marijuana. Um, We also deal with behavioral addictions like what would be a behavioral addiction? Like gambling. Gambling. What else? How many of you think video games could be addictions? They are. The CDC actually recognizes video game addiction now, which they have—they should have done a while ago, but they're finally <laughs> on board. So when dealing with addictions, the philosophy used to be that we had a war on drugs. We thought that if you're addicted to something, that means that you have some kind of moral failing. Something is wrong with you. You're making bad decisions and we're going to start a war on drugs and we're just going to incarcerate everybody that is doing drugs. So that didn't work. Now we just have overpopulated prisons with lots of people with um drug addictions with no treatment and it hasn't gotten better in fact the problem has gotten worse so what we started understanding and looking more into addiction is that the power behind addiction actually stems from the brain so i will tie this all around i promise when i tell you that your brain is the most powerful thing inside your body and it can actually it can change so many things. If you know how to, how to work your brain, then you can literally be limitless in what you do with your life. But addiction is very complex because there's parts of the brain that it affects that are as powerful as our need to eat or our need to drink water. So have you all had anatomy and physiology? Is that required, do you have? some kind of anatomy class, like a health class. Okay, so we know that our brain is, let's do my little little picture here of the brain. That's good. Okay, so this looks like a brain, right, (laughs) brain? So there's a part of the brain right around this area, the inner brain, um, that it, really is the most powerful thing. It was the first thing created when, when your mind was being stitched together. It's the first part of your brain that started being put together because it controls your need for food, your need for breathing oxygen, your need for water, uh, your need to have kids uh, so that our species can survive. So that's called, and it's funny they say this, but they call it the lizard brain because that is the part of the brain that is survival-based. The rest of it, so our corpus callosum, all the gray area in our brain, we call that the wizard brain because that's the higher functioning, that's the emotions, that's where decision-making is. So the wizard brain um, talks to the lizard brain and when we say, all right, I really like slushies, I need sustenance to survive so I'm going to drink a slushie that's the lizard brain right it's need for sugar because our body does need sugar to survive but our gray matter our wizard brain says all right you can have a cup but we're not going to get a vat and bathe in it okay so that's how our brain talks to each other when it comes to addiction addiction is something that affects the lizard brain. So it's almost, I don't want to say impossible, but it's extremely, extremely difficult to tell somebody who's addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs or addicted to a behavior, well just choose to stop it. That's like saying, just choose to stop eating. It becomes excruciatingly painful to stop and that's when you have withdrawal symptoms. So, when you talk about how powerful some of these um, some of these things in your body can be I'll make another little 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 chart here all right so in this in well okay first I need to explain this this is a very rudimentary nerve synapse okay so going back to the brain talking about how powerful our brains are um, when whatever you do, what your growth, your, um, when you decide to get married, all of those things in your life, all the decisions in your life, have chemical, hormonal consequences. That, that's what builds our cell memory. So if you have a, a traumatic experience in your life, if you've experienced abuse, If you've experienced something overly joyful, um, those, uh, those environmental factors, those things create memories in our brain through chemicals and through hormones that are released. While those things are released, on the very ends of our nerve cells, do you guys know what the nerve cells in the brain is called? Neurons. So, at the end of each neuron is something called a synapse. Okay, so this is a synapse and then there's a gap and then it talks to the next synapse. We have trillions and trillions of synapses in our brain and they send um, messages to each other at lightning speed and that's how we have memories and thought and that's how our brain releases hormones and neurotransmitters, those are the cells in our brains that, are, that tell our body what to do. So, if you have a great experience, like eating a pizza in New York City, okay? So then this neuron releases a neurotransmitter and it sits, the neurotransmitters sit in something called mu receptors on the accepting synapse. That releases those mu receptors release dopamine. You guys have heard of dopamine, right? So what are some other things that release dopamine? What are some other activities that release dopamine? Something that makes you feel good, something that tells your brain, I want to do this activity again. What are some good things you do for your body? Exercise. Exercise. Exercise is a great one. Um, Drinking water releases dopamine. Um, Actually making eye contact with somebody actually chemically releases dopamine in your brain. Because we have in that lizard brain, there is a need for human connection. There's a need for acceptance, a need for family relationships. Um, Believe it or not, when you look at social media and you see that somebody liked a post, that gives you a little spurt of dopamine in your brain. So when somebody puts substances in their body, that dopamine is actually, that rush, is actually what makes you euphoric or have a high feeling, and that's actually what people get addicted to. People can't actually get addicted to Attention a substance. Students, we will be having a Liberator Time meeting for all sophomores and juniors today. We're going to be um, introducing a new program, so we want all sophomores and juniors in the auditorium during Liberator Time today. Thank you. Okay. Was that the bell or is there another one coming? Another, coming. another one coming. Okay. <laughs> so, any, I know this is a lot. Please feel free to interrupt me or stop me or if you have any questions, okay? Um, so, when those new receptors are activated, they give you a rush of dopamine, and that in the lizard brain is what tells your body do this again. Do this again. That felt good. We need this. We need this to survive. So, if you had So if this was your dopamine levels in your brain, okay, you're working at a baseline of Let's say a hundred percent. So that's when your normal daily life going to school doing your thing food gives you a dopamine surge of about 150% so that's and I don't know if any of you have ever tried to diet, but that's just a 50% dopamine increase. And think of how hard it is to give up sugar, or ice cream, or bread, or whatever crazy diet is going on now. You know, when you think about just that increase in dopamine, that's pretty difficult to overcome, right? Well, what about substances like um, alcohol? Alcohol gives you between 200 and 300 percent dopamine, dopamine rush. I know my graph's not real great right here. So that's even even more. So if you get uh, inebriated or euphoric from using alcohol, and you tell somebody, no, you're never allowed to use alcohol again, you can see you can start to see why it's difficult for people to give up. Um, cocaine, cocaine or opioids. You guys have heard about the opioid epidemic, right? So cocaine or opioids, heroin, those give you a dopamine release of about 400%. So now you can start to see why people would choose to use a substance even over eating food because their brain is telling them this is more important than any other percent thing I can get with a lesser percentage. What about meth? You guys, you guys know about meth. It's a really big problem in our area. It's a big problem in rural America. What is the dopamine percentage you think of somebody who does meth? What would your guess be? Eight hundred. Eight hundred. Anybody else? Your graph goes up to one thousand five hundred, so I'm going to say one thousand two hundred. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm nice deductive reasoning.
1: Think- So meth is between 1,300 and 1,400%. So when you start to see how incredibly uh, strong the impulses in your brain are when you're on these types of drugs, you can see how difficult it is for people to overcome them. So what can we do? Well. In the, in the past, we've used traditional counseling and therapy, psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapies um, to help somebody get down to a stable place where they can start making better decisions because we know that drugs ravage somebody's entire life, right? Um, that is part of what we do at our clinic. The other part of what we do is we offer something called MAT, Medication for Addiction Treatment. So MAT is um, a pharmaceutical approach to substance recovery, in which patients take a drug. It's usually either something called naltrexone or buprenorphine. So I won't get too technical. But basically what those drugs do is they block off the mu receptors, okay? So now that those mu receptors are blocked off, those neurotransmitters can't be absorbed by them and the dopamine effect is not there. A lot of people would say, well isn't that just replacing one drug with another? And really it's not, because with the pharmacotherapies that we provide, You are actually giving them a drug that will not allow them to get high, not allow somebody to have cravings, it reduces cravings, and it really gets people to a normal level of behavior and thinking where they can actually, oh my gosh, I've been neglecting my family or drinking too much or now I'm in a really bad place in my health and they can start getting healthier. It's a long process, but it is possible and we have seen people recover. Um, Usually people stay on medication for addiction treatment months or years. Uh, We treat addiction as a chronic disease, Um, just like if somebody had diabetes and they were dependent on insulin. We would say if somebody has a chronic disease like addiction and they're dependent on buprenorphine or naltrexone, that's okay. They can function, you can get back to work, you can stabilize your thinking. So I say all that to answer, what is power? If you don't have control over your own mind and you don't have control over your own actions and your own thoughts, then you are rendering yourself powerless over your future. But if you can recognize that the experiences you have, um, whether they're good or bad, they may still reside in your memory bank, they may still have effects in your life, but you can take control over that and you can do that through counseling, you can do that through therapy um, and you can retain and keep power over your own mind um, your whole lives. There's nothing that can stop you. So that made me start thinking when I was thinking about talking to you guys about how a lot of people ask about genes what, what part does DNA play, right? Because what is DNA? The genetic
0: makeup.
1: It's our genetic makeup, right? Can you change your DNA? Can't change it, right? So a lot of people think, well, my dad was an alcoholic, my grandfather was an alcoholic, my great grandfathers an alcoholic, I'm destined to be an alcoholic. Well, that's not true if you don't drink. If you take away that temptation, you're not going to become an alcoholic. About 10% of us have a gene in our DNA that make us susceptible to addiction. So that means that if everybody in here broke their leg and we all had to go to the hospital together and we all had to be put on opioids together, most of us would be able to take those painkillers and after six weeks get off of them and be great on our new leg. But there is a percentage of people that once they take that first medication, that first pain medication, that first, it it becomes, it activates something in our lizard brain that makes you think, I need this to survive. I will never be okay without this. And that's when addiction starts. So, I know this is not anybody at this school, but spring break is coming up. And it's important to remember That and when you guys go to college, that when you see people that that drink or do drugs, it's it's really important to remember that you don't you might not know if you carry that gene. So just be vigilant, be careful, inform yourself. Um, If you have a substance that you take and you start to have cravings or you start to do things like skip school in order to have that substance or you're losing relationships in order to have that substance then you probably have a problem and need to talk to somebody um, and doing that does not make you a failure just like somebody with diabetes going in to get insulin does not make them a failure it means you're treating your body exactly the way you need to treat get your body treated um A lot of people also think that because their genetic makeup um, predisposes them to other diseases that they're destined for that. So some people might say, well, um, depression runs in my family. Have you ever heard of that? Um, Or, uh, you know, well, let's just say postpartum depression or depression in general. A lot of people might say, that runs in my family, so I have the genes for that. Well, there's a new field of neurology called neuroplasticity. You guys ever heard of neuroplasticity? Yeah? It is incredibly exciting. I could really nerd out to it, but I'll contain myself. So neuroplasticity is a new field of science in which we're understanding that we are not destined to just our genetic code. So that means that you might be somebody who carries a gene that predisposes you to depression, or you might carry a gene that predisposes you to PTSD, but that gene might not express itself. It may or it may not. So what would determine if it does or it doesn't? Those would be environmental factors. So. For example, they did a study on women who went through the Holocaust. When their children were born, their children had very high um, gene codes for PTSD because of the trauma that their mothers went through in concentration camps. But then when they had their children, their children did not express a PTSD gene the way they did. What was the change? The change was the environment in which they were raised. So no matter what your genetic makeup is, no matter what your code says about you, no matter what has been in your family history, no matter what traumatic experience you've come against, no matter if you've had a horrific accident, whatever your, uh, whatever disability you've encountered, that does not destine who you are or what genes will express themselves in you because if you control your mind if you are become be very self-aware of triggers if you protect your brain then you can retain the power that you need to be successful to be centered to be somebody that is able to succeed in whatever you set your mind to Um, I think that's pretty much what I wanted to say today. What questions can I answer? <laughs> yeah. Um, so
0: something I'm like very like curious and intrigued by is like the incarceration system. Yes. So do you feel like, or I guess a better initial question would be, what do
1: um, incarcerated criminals like? What kind of treatment do they get if they're addicted, if any, or do they just sit in a jail cell? That is something I'm passionate about too and that's something that I have been trying to work with law enforcement on in our several counties. So like I said before, um, when people would have, um, let's say they would get high and rob a store, they'd go to the prison and they would withdraw because once you don't have that substance you go through really severe withdrawals, okay? Um, sometimes it takes like a day or two to withdraw sometimes it's like if you're on MEV it takes like seven to ten days to withdraw Um, so they did not really have any resources for people in prisons as of a few years ago they started having um, medical staff come to jail cells to monitor people and basically they would say well if they're not dying then we'll just keep them here with a nurse watching them if they're dying, meaning their vitals are out of whack, their blood pressure, pulse, heart, all that stuff, if that's going nuts, then we'll send them to the emergency room. So, and they'll detox there for a little while till they're not dying, and then we'll send them back to jail. Well, what they've started doing in the last, just the last few years, not and it's not every place does this, is they started offering MAT, the Medication for Addiction Treatment, in the jail system, in the prison system and remarkably the rates of success with no relapse when somebody gets out of prison, if they've started treatment in prison, it's better than people just coming in off the street to get treatment. So that's partially because they've been able to start treatment in a very structured environment They have access to a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy which is counseling and when they get out they really have a lot more tools to stay sober. Um, So we are um, contracting with a few places to bring our providers in to start treatment to people in the jail setting. Um, It's definitely something that. The court system is starting to get on the wave of. I'm sure you've all heard of drug courts. You heard of drug courts, so we don't have a drug court in our area yet, but um, judges can say, you know, you're allowed to stay out of jail as long as you stay in treatment. And if somebody is in treatment, you know, we do drug testing every time somebody walks through the door, so we can tell if they're on their meds or not. Um, But if you stay on your meds, you have a very high chance of staying sober and regaining a, a. A good life. Any other questions? So
0: the medication you mentioned, Mm -hmm. you said that it blocks off the dopamine, right? Mm -hmm. Is that just an effect for like dopamine caused by like the substance abuse or does it come into effect with everything?
1: That's a great question. I get that question a lot at conferences. Okay, so remember this beautiful art. Um, So these receptors here that take the the drugs are called the mu receptors we have a lot of different mu uh, receptors there's alpha receptors beta receptors mu receptors are the ones that are affected by drugs or um, opioids so just if you're taking medication addiction for addiction treatment and you're blocking those mu receptors um, that doesn't mean you're never going to feel happy again because you have other receptors that um, normal activities can activate Anybody else?
0: So does the new receptors just block off the drugs or like what else like do the new receptors um, accept other than just drugs or just drugs?
1: Well, so what they, so what they do is they also accept, they also accept, um, they accept the drug. So like let's say, let's say this is, this is a mu receptor. Okay. It can accept the drug. For those of you in the podcast world I have my arms in the air (laughs) Um, so it can accept an opioid drug like imagine a big ball between my hands um, and that's the the opioid it can also accept other neurotransmitters um, that can uh, that'll stimulate other dopamine so it, it kind of depends. It gets technical, but it can it's can either be natural substances in your body or the opioids that it can accept. Yes.
0: Yeah. So then, do you have like a higher rate of depression when on that drug at times? Like, is
1: there a higher rate? I like okay. the way you're thinking. Okay. Um, you're thinking like a provider. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so that's a great question. It depends. Um, some people do express uh, more depression when they become sober, and that's mostly because their body has been so chemically out of whack that what happens is once you once you start getting a 1400 percent dopamine rush from meth, it's really hard to get back any rush at all from anything else. That's why when you see it like a hardcore meth addict, They usually have no relationship with their family, they usually don't care about money, they don't care if they have their teeth. And it's because that drug has satiated so much of their brain. Um, So once those start to become realigned, we don't know if people are more depressed because they're so chemically imbalanced or because they realize the direness of their situation. Usually, it's a combination of both, but we do treat that with antidepressants. So, when we when we treat meth, um, we use, we almost always have a some kind of antidepressant component in their treatment. So, what would you
0: suggest for people who aren't financially stable for
1: these treatments? So that's, that's another great question, and that's something that we come up against a lot, um, is how do people pay for these treatments? Um, so at Citizens Memorial Hospital, we have a sliding fee scale where they sit with a counselor and they say, look, I only make 10 bucks a year, and we'll say, okay, well, according to our sliding fee scale, pay us 50 cents, okay, that's how a sliding fee scale works. Um, but if you have Medicare, Medicaid, and any other insurance, it'll pay for treatment. Yes, this might be a little bit of a silly question, but when you see No shows, such thing.
0: <laughs> when you see shows or media like Breaking Bad, where it's like, is that accurate to you? Is that like, no, that's so not right? Or is it like, yes, somebody's
1: finally depicting it accurately, or I don't know. Um. I have not seen Breaking Bad because it's just okay. like too close to home. Okay, <laughs> um, that's a valid, yeah. It's, um, I would say that um, most like gritty shows that I see are pretty, pretty accurate. Um, we are an outpatient program. Do you guys know the difference between outpatient and patient? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, an outpatient program is when a patient lives at their house and they can come to treatment Um, Our treatment is typically once a month. So they'll come to our office once a month, like a regular doctor's visit. Inpatient treatment is like when you go to the hospital and break your leg and you have to spend the night there. That's when you're there as an inpatient. So um, when somebody is in a really, really bad situation where they're living on the street, um, where they have, um, usually if somebody is a very hardcore user, they're sharing needles, um, or, they've, or they're in dangerous behavior in order to get their drug. And that almost always leads to um, secondary infections. Um, we have a pretty high rate of people with Hep C, HIV, um, because of what's ha- what they've let happen to their body. Um, so in those kinds of situations, somebody would need to go to an inpatient rehab place Um, for a bit of time before they can transfer to outpatient. So we work with people in Springfield that have inpatient um, and they'll help get them housing, help them kind of get on their feet again, um, and then they can transfer to an outpatient program like ours.
0: Yeah. So like what
1: is your official job title per se and how did you get there? So my official job title is program manager and um like degrees in college too. okay okay yeah so um I had a, a degree in international business and Spanish and um, after school I lived in Mexico for a couple of years and then my husband and I moved um, back east where we're from the Northeast um, my family's in Pennsylvania New York and my husband's from New York and so we lived in the Bronx um, about 10 years while he was finishing medical school so when we were there um, cocaine's really the big problem there so he's family practice but he would see cocaine addicts all the time I worked for um, a company where I built programs um, between universities hospitals and colleges in Saudi Arabia and New York City so um, I did program development, and it was a small company uh, when we started, but I worked with a physician and a lawyer, and basically we would, and he, the boss, was from Palestine, so he had all these connections in the Middle East, and he would contact them and they'd say, we want to have a group of nurses come over and teach our nurses how to, you know, the latest techniques in inpatient hygiene, let's say. So then they'd contact me and I would find those experts and I'd send them over there. I didn't wanna go. Um, Then they would say, okay, we have a group of students here in Saudi that want to become nurses in America. So I worked with building programs for them to come and get English training, medical terminology training. Um, I'd work with schools to, um, build programs so that our 10 students could get in to get their um, BSN license as a nurse. Um, so I did a lot of program development and it was most of it was from scratch. So after we moved to this area, um, we started having family and my husband would come home from work and he'd say I have so many patients coming in and I have a lot of medical doctors in my family and he'd say I have a lot of patients coming in that have a drug problem and I have nowhere to send them because for most of the patients in this area if you say you have to go to Springfield for treatment every two weeks you might as well tell them to go to Mars because most drug pe- a lot of people with drug problems here don't have cars they don't have insurance they have nothing so he said would you write a business plan and a proposal for for me to present to the hospital for a rehabilitation place. So that's what I did. So that was a few years ago, and we worked out a lot of kinks and opened six months ago. So my role now is looking for grant money and speaking to the community and trying to build relationships with DFS and with other support groups, with, Other places that we can refer patients back and forth, um, things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. So, are you like employed by the hospital or are you your own entity? We are owned by the hospital. Okay, yes.
0: Because I'm going to assume that you also deal with like pregnant women and how the unlike and when they like give birth that those those children are also like addicted. How do you deal with that?
1: That's um, an excellent question and that's something that's incredibly close to my heart Uh, our county we actually just got a call a few months ago from the state that our county was flagged as having one of the highest rates of babies born with drugs in their system in the state the entire state Um, so I'm on a task force at the hospital to try to figure out why this is happening how to stop it from happening and the bottom line is um, you cannot have Uh, So babies born with drugs have something called NAS, that's called Neonatal Abstinence Syndrome, NAS. You cannot reduce the number of babies born with NAS without effectively treating um, women in this area. Um, You can look online and you can find sober housing and you can find programs for single men all over the place, but women come with kids and because of that, there's an incredible shortage of resources for women, pregnant women and women with children that are dealing with, with substance abuse or substance use disorder. So what we're trying to do is work with, um, to work to try to get treatment to those women. Um, a lot of women that come with a drug problem to the hospital and give birth, um, if the baby has NAS, we typically have to helicopter the baby to Springfield for treatment. Um, we don't have a NICU here in Bolivar, so our resources are limited but I'm working on that. Um, and there's wonderful, um, our, our OBGYN and our pediatric departments at the hospital are, are amazing. So this is something that everybody's kind of talking about. Um, But as far as treatment before they come in to give birth, um, MAT, you can use certain drugs in MAT for women that are pregnant. But a lot of them live outside of our county, in counties that don't have a hospital. So we are working with um, telehealth to try to treat women um, where they can log in and talk to one of our providers on an app through their phone. Um, we're also working with another group that does transportation, so that if women have to come in to get treatment, they can, we'll provide transportation for them. So that's all under the scope of something called access to care. And access to care is something that is so incredibly limited for people in rural America that we're, we're trying to piece together all these things that somebody needs, they need childcare. You know, when somebody starts medication for addiction treatment, their first treatment is going to take a couple of hours to make sure they don't have any side effects. Well, what if they have, you know, three or four kids? We need to have emergency child drop off or something where their kids are safe in the room next door while they're getting treatment. So these are all pieces that we're trying to make it um, easier for people to get access to care. That's a great question. Anybody else?
0: How, like, I'm thinking if I have a dopamine rush as extreme as with meth or even, I mean, I feel like cocaine or opioids. And maybe this is my lack of ability to control my own brain right now, Um like, or to have use all of its power. I feel like even after I went through treatment, I would just want that again. So what? How does? how do you yeah. learn to take control of your brain in a way that
1: sure that's a that's a great question too because you still have memories of that you know you know like adrenaline junkies this is the same principle of somebody like once they jump out of an airplane and they're like that was the most amazing rush of my life and they, they have to keep upping that um, It's the same principle so when somebody leaves treatment um, they're at a high risk of relapse because, they want to go back to getting that great feeling. And that's really why we push medication for addiction treatment because it greatly reduces cravings and it greatly reduces the risk of relapse. That's what relapse would be. And just because somebody relapses doesn't mean they can't come back. There's a difference between a full-blown relapse and a mistake. People make mistakes. We tell our patients, we don't expect you to be clean forever and ever and ever. Mistakes happen but we just continue with the treatment and it's, it's effective. Um, when somebody leaves treatment their brain is also now not used to having drugs all the time. So if they do relapse and they try to shoot up heroin which is now laced with fentanyl which has been horrific um, and they try to use the same amount that maybe they used before their brain is suddenly not as tolerant to that level and that's when people die in OD. So um, we've had, um, I think a, I was talking to my husband about it, just even outside the program, just people we know. We've had, I think in the last two years, gone to I think six funerals of people under 30 that have od And it's because it's, it's your highest risk of OD is right after rehab. So that's when you have to be really vigilant um, and stay away from triggers. Um, so, like if you've been in a, in a car accident, being in a car might be a trigger for you where you get anxious or scared. Just like that, you know, there's there's things that will trigger you to want to use again. So it's it's it, forever in your life. Tri- being aware of triggers in your life, if you if you're you know, in a relationship with somebody that when you see them, you start to have heart palpitations and get nervous and sweaty, that person's not a good relationship for you. Back off from that, and you know, that's even good advice when you guys go to college and like start dating and stuff. If there's, like, pay attention to the vital signs that your body's giving you. Um, that. If, if something's triggering a, a response in your body that is um, detrimental, pay attention to that. Anything else?
0: So, can, what can we do um, when we're with people that we know and love who are struggling with addiction? Like, what is the external role of like yeah. giving power back?
1: Sure. Versus, yeah. um, I think that a lot of people. They, people have to be ready for treatment. Um, if You can't force somebody to go into treatment. Even if you have somebody from jail that the judge says you have to go in and get your medication for addiction treatment, if in their heart they're not ready for treatment, as soon as that treatment's over, they're gonna go right back to using. So if you know somebody with a substance abuse problem or somebody that you think might have a substance abuse problem, um, I would encourage just to open a line of conversation with them. And I'll tell you right now, it's going to be met with most likely anger, hostility. What are you talking about? I don't got a problem. You got the problem. Okay? You're going to hear all that. But staying staying with them as a friend and saying, "I'm I'm I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. I'm just telling you this is what I'm seeing and this isn't you. This you're acting, you're not acting like yourself or you quit your job or you lost your job because of this or you haven't talked to your mom and dad in years because of this or you know, you can point out things but I think just consistently um, kind of holding their hands and saying you know, I'll take you to a program. Let's go together. You know, that's another, almost all of our patients, I, I don't even know if we've had ever had a patient come in by themselves. They always are brought by someone. So, um, you know, and of course, you can always um, call call our program if you want to talk about a friend or bring somebody in. We see people that just walk in. You don't have to get referred. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Does the MAT work for behavioral addictions?
1: It does. It does. Okay. Um, we, we have a, a couple people in. Um, it's been effective with gambling. So that's been really good. Yeah.
0: Bell was about to ring, so does anyone have any like last minute pressing questions? Yes? Um, how long does the program take?
1: So we we like to see patients in at least 13 months because it gets them through trigger dates and holidays. Um, uh, you know, that lizard part of the brain is also where our fear, anxiety, and worry center is. So when people see... A trigger date coming up. Oh my God, Christmas is Christmas is the worst. They're more likely to use. So we try to get them through that. But honestly, the longer you stay in, you're sober. So we really don't have an arbitrary date. Uh, we encourage people to stay on it a long time. We we have some people that have been on it for years, and they're doing great. I really appreciate you guys letting me come and talk. Thank you.